Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Meditation from Sinai. This is our fabulous six-part series all about Jewish meditation and Jewish spirituality. So this is, as I mentioned, this is lesson number five, which means we're kind of uh, the last third, not kind of, literally the last third of the series. And we've, of course, saved the best for last. That's how we always roll with these courses. So tonight, we're going to get into tonight's topic in a moment. But first, I want to tell you a story. The story goes that there's a zoo, very prominent zoo, along with a very prominent zookeeper. And the zookeeper, by the way, this is not me giving a commentary on the, the ethics of zoos. That's for another, that's for another dis discussion for another class. But there's the zookeeper at the zoo that has a uh, just an absolutely phenomenal display. It's an exhibit that has, it's called the Mashiach exhibit. You know, the Mashiach, right? Messiah, Messianic exhibit. It's the Mashiach exhibit. And what's the exhibit? Come see the lion and the lamb. You know, Isaiah says when Mashiach comes, the lion will lie with the lamb. Lion and the lamb. Unbelievable. So this fellow... Jewish fellow walks in. He's amazed. How is it possible? He scratched his head, a lion and a lamb together in the same enclosure. It's not yet the Messianic era. What's going on? To make the long story short, as they say in Yiddish. Um, so he goes over to the zookeeper. Zookeeper says, look, do me a favor. Tell me the secret. How do you do it? Zookeeper says, easy. Easy. How do I do it? How do I keep the lion and the lambs lion and lamb together? Easy. Lots of lambs. My friends, this is lesson number. That was the punchline. Lots of lambs. My friends, this is lesson number five of <laughs> can't take me anywhere. Of meditation from Sinai. And tonight we look at eating and sleeping and working. You see, up until now. We've developed in the last few weeks, three weeks or so, we've developed some pretty remarkable meditations, some pretty remarkable meditations with some equally remarkable outcomes from the meditation. So we developed, and I know I've called it the, the spiritual consciousness meditation or divine consciousness meditation. I'm going to use a little bit of different terminology um, at the outset tonight to contrast what we did last week with the previous weeks. So number one, we developed what, what I'm calling now the divine space meditation. What's the divine space meditation? The upshot is that we meditated on the fact that the divine energy is the life force that flows within every single thing, every living entity within the universe. It fills, it flows within, it's, it permeates all, all of existence, the entire fabric of the universe. That was the meditation, divine space meditation, i.e. the divine fills all space. And the outcome of that meditation helped us, that meditation, right? thinking it, connecting with it, feeling it, living with it, helps us create priorities, what's important, what's not. It helps us feel more joy and connection. God is everywhere around us. It helps us see the patterns in our lives, even the negative stuff. There's a pattern, there's a purpose, because after all, there's divine flowing through everything. And of course, it helps us find meaning and purpose throughout life. That was the first general meditation. Last week, we spoke about the divine time meditation, not the divine space meditation, 
but the divine time meditation. What's the divine time meditation? Well, the upshot of that one was that God and the divine life force is constantly sustaining and recreating every single thing out of nothingness into somethingness in a constant, continuous fashion. Gave the example last week of a projector of light, the frames per second. We gave lots of different analogies of flying rocks and flying footballs, perhaps. All that is, was last week. The point is that at every moment, God is sustaining and even more so recreating the universe. And what's the payoff? What's the outcome of that meditation? Well, if God is recreating everything, including myself, this moment and this moment, well, that helps us tune into the power and the purpose of every moment, living mindfully and fully present. So that's what we talked about the last several weeks, last three weeks. Tonight, we take this a huge step forward and we get very practical. You see, if God is within everything and within every moment, if the, if the divine life force is permeating everything at every moment, then that means, and hear me out for a second, that there is no human activity. There's no human activity that is devoid of a higher divine purpose and reality. Every activity, no matter how mundane it might seem, is an opportunity to connect and experience the divine. Again, simple mathematics, simple mystical math. If God is flowing through, if the divine life force is flowing through everything at every moment, then there's nothing too mundane for God to be within. And this is huge. This is huge. You see, we intuitively sense that spiritual activities are spiritual, hence the name spiritual activities. So certain things that are holy, right? Studying Torah, prayer, doing a mitzvah, things that are objectively holy. Yeah, we understand that those things are spiritual. But naturally, we sense that physical activities are anything but divine. And that's, again, a perfectly reasonable perception. In fact, and as we all know, in certain cultures, in certain um, societies, spiritual movements, the more one is separated, shall we say, from mundane activities, the holier one is. The mark of someone who's holy, who's spiritual, who's divine, is someone who precisely does not engage in very physical, very mundane activities. And again, it's all based on the belief that to be spiritual requires spiritual activity. And mundane activity renders one mundane. That is not the Jewish outlook. It's not the Jewish perception, and it's not what Jewish meditation has taught us. Jewish meditation has taught us that the divine energy is flowing through everything at every moment, not just through a pair of tefillin and Shabbat candles, but through every single aspect of life, there is a divine energy flow constantly creating and recreating it. So here's the big idea. Judaism teaches that every activity, any activity, no matter how mundane it might seem, no matter how boring it might seem, can be holy spiritual. 
But here's the catch. Here's the catch. In order to experience the divine in the mundane act, we need to be in the correct meditative mind space, which means that we'll be, we'll, we'll be needing to think the right thing, to see the right things, to have a different experience as we're doing those activities. So the big idea is that in Judaism, there is no objective divide between the spiritual and the mundane. Even the mundane can be experienced as something spiritual if the price is right. I'm kidding. If, that was a game show, if we have the right spiritual mindset, if we have the right mindset, we can see the divine everywhere. So this is the objective of tonight's lesson. We're going to take a look at some of the most mundane human activities, some of the most boring, normal, everyday activities, and explore a deeper dimension to these activities. We're going to discover how these activities indeed flow from a higher divine source and thus can be experienced on a completely different level. Specifically, we could cover more um, areas of life. We're going to specifically focus on three areas of mundane life. Number one, eating. Number two, sleeping. And number three, working. In other words, the kitchen, the bedroom, and the boardroom, right? Can we find spirituality? Can we experience the divine in the kitchen, in the bedroom, in the boardroom? The answer, of course, as you know, based on this intro is yes. But how? Through spiritual attentiveness, through spiritual focus, through Jewish meditation. And that's what we're going to cover tonight. We're going to explore each of these three categories, sleep, sorry, eating, sleeping, and working. Within each of these categories, we're going to present our initial approach. I'm giving you the outline of tonight's class. We're going to present the initial approach, mundane activity, eating, pff, mundane, sleeping, mundane, working, mundane. We're going to start off with the normative view. Then I'm going to present the meditations that take us into level after level of a deeper experience three levels of deeper experiences in both in, in eating, in sleeping, and in working. My friends, oh, and then within each session, we're going to do a little bit differently tonight. Usually, we, I play the meditation at the end of the whole class. Today, we're going to do it after each of these three sections. There's going to be a meditation from Rabbi Label Wolf from Australia, a meditation on eating, a meditation on sleeping, and a meditation on working. But here's the catch. When we play the meditation on sleeping, no one should be sleeping, okay? Do not fall asleep during the sleeping meditation. That is not the objective of the sleeping meditation. Okay, my friends, this, this lesson tonight is going to unfold within or going to unfold in three acts. Number one, act one, hungry food. Act two, from under the covers. And act number three, heaven's password. My friends, this is epic. I am glad you're here with me. Let's rock and roll. All right, before we get into the details, this is before we get into Act 1, which you might recall as hungry food. Before we do that, I need to tell you one other point of introduction. And that is that everything we're going to talk about tonight is not the Jewish version of icing on the cake. In other words, I'm not telling you anything tonight that is like 
extra credit, extra special stuff to find the divine, even while we eat, while we sleep, while we work. This is not like extra credit. Like after we've mastered the, the other stuff, then we go on to this level. What I'm referring to, what we're going to talk about tonight is the bread and butter of Judaism, all puns intended. It is the very core of Judaism. What I mean is that at the core of Judaism, as we've explored over the last few weeks, at the core is Hashem Echad, the notion that God is one. And God is one means not just there's one God versus many gods. It's not a numbers game golf, you know, being the low score wins. That's not what the point of God is one is. What, what it means when we say that God is one is that God is at one with everything in existence. There's no place devoid of God's oneness. And thus, the activity to find God in the mundane is not like icing on the cake. It's the cake itself, if we could say such a thing, right? It's the cake. It's recognizing that indeed, Hashem Echad, God is one. God is here amidst this mundane experience of eating and sleeping and working as God is in the synagogue, during prayer, at the time of meditation, Torah study, and mitzvah performance. I hope that makes sense. I want to show, let's, let's do a few texts together to kind of see this black and white and get this Jewish foundational teaching. We're going to use, um, uh, we're going to, going to first begin with a verse from Proverbs. Let's, uh, let's do this one. Um, Vlad, are you up to taking this one? Text 1A? All right, awesome. Um, Vlad, text, don't forget to unmute, please. Text 1A from Proverbs. Know God in all your ways, and he will direct your path. Okay. Seems very simple. Seems innocent enough. Well, it's the foundation of tonight's class. Know God in all your ways. Look at that. Look at that line. Know God. The second line, we'll leave for a second. Look at that first line. Know God in all your ways. What does that mean? That means wherever you go, find God there. Right? If you're eating, find God. If you're, I don't mean like the people that find like divine images in their grilled cheese sandwich and sell it on eBay for a thousand dollars. Although, you know, if you can turn a profit, why not? I'm just saying, find God in all your activities and all your ways. That means not just when you do a mitzvah in all your ways means even when engaged in very mundane, very physical activities. Take a look at text 1B, the next text. The Talmud comments on this, and this is big. You know what, Vlad, if you don't mind, let's, uh, we'll give you text 1B as well, the twin text. And yeah, take it away, Talmud. Bar Kapara taught, which is a brief passage upon which all fundamental principles of Torah are dependent. Know God in all your ways, and he will direct your path. So listen to this. I mean, the last, the end of it is the same verse that we just read. But what does Bar Kapara say? Talmud Tractate Brachot 63a. Bar Kapara says, what's the verse? What's the little verse? Parsha Katana. What's the little verse? Upon which the entire edifice of Torah is built. In other words, the whole skyscraper of Torah, of, of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism. What's the foundation? And I know if you ask that question to a bunch of rabbis, you'll get a bunch of different verses. Like, what's the foundational idea of the Torah? Oh, boy. Now you're going to get a lot of opinions. But Bar Kapara is one opinion. And you know what Bar Kapara says? Know God in all your ways. That's the foundation of Torah. The foundation of Torah, the fundamental principle of Torah is 
Know God, whatever you're doing, find God in that activity. Again, that is what we're doing tonight. It's easy, relatively easy, easier to find God in prayer, in Torah study, in, in mitzvah observance. It's easy. It's easier. But find God while you're eating, right? Find God in a restaurant. Find God, you know, while you're sleeping. Find God while you're working. That's already, that's already something magical. And that's what Judaism is about, according to Bar Kapar. Bar Kapar, one of the great, uh, one of the great Talmudic sages, says the whole Torah is predicated. The whole of Judaism is found, founded upon finding God, whatever you are doing. It's absolutely remarkable. It's find God in the experiences that don't seem holy. You don't need, it's like you don't even need the Torah to tell you. You don't need Judaism to tell you that the spiritual is spiritual. It's like you don't need that. It's obvious. Spiritual things are spiritual. Thank you very much. That's why we call them spiritual. But you know where you need, you know where like Judaism earns its shekels, you know where Torah earns its keep? It's when it shows you that even the mundane is holy. That's the chiddush. That's the novelty. That's, that's where things get interesting. That's what it means to know God in all your ways. All your ways can be holy as well. And it's consistent not only with the Jewish meditational concepts that we've explored over the last three weeks, but it's also consistent with Jewish law. Take a look at some Rambam. We're going to study Maimonides now. This is not meditation. This is halacha. This is Jewish law. I'm going to share my screen. You have it in your books as well. This is going to be text number two on page 150. And I feel like I should make this, make my screen a little bigger just in case people are, are looking at the screen. All right. Let's ask, let's ask, let's ask Bill. Bill, are you up to reading? Yes. Uh, we should direct our hearts in the totality of our behavior to one goal. Becoming aware of God, blessed be he. The way we rest, rise, and converse should all be directed to this end. For example, when involved in business dealings or while working for a wage, we should not think solely of amassing wealth. Rather, we should engage in such activities for the sake of being in a position to obtain that which our body needs. Food, drink, shelter, and a spouse. Then when we eat, drink, or engage in intimate relations, we should not intend to do these things solely for pleasure, to the point that we eat and drink only that which is sweet and tasty, and we engage in intimacy for pleasure. Rather, we should focus our minds while eating and drinking on the exclusive benefit of maintaining a fully healthy body. Therefore, we should not eat whatever the palate desires, which would put us on a par with animals, but rather we should select foods that are beneficial for the body, whether they are bitter or sweet. And we should avoid substances that are harmful to the body, even if they taste delicious. Thank you for reading this. So what's interesting is Maimonides seems like he's trying to take the fun out of food, which, you know, I don't know how you feel about that, but that's kind of what he's saying, right? If it tastes good, but it's not good, don't eat it. Aye. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's half the fun of eating. Now, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm kidding. I mean, I'm kind of not kidding and kidding at the same time. But Maimonides is telling us that in our mundane activities, look what he says, just to head back to the beginning, right? Um, the totality of our behavior should be focused on one goal, which is becoming aware of God, 
And that means everything that we do, the way we rest, rise, converse, all directed, the way we eat, sleep, intimacy, et cetera, everything should be directed toward a higher purpose. So we're not going to use that text from Maimonides to kind of build the spiritual understanding and the meditation. That's not what we're using Maimonides for over there. But simply we're highlighting the fact that it's canonized within Jewish law. It's a foundation of Jewish law. Maimonides wrote 14 volumes of Jewish law, and that's the beginning, the first book of Jewish law that he writes. It, it's a foundational Jewish teaching that we're meant to find God in all of our activities, not just in the holy stuff, but in the mundane stuff. The, mundane, the mundane stuff is meant to be made holy. So we're not meant to, we're not meant to run away from the mundane physical activities, but to transform them to a holier space. And tonight's class is predicated on this idea that we can do this, and we can do this specifically through mindfulness, intention, and meditation, through hitbonenut, kavana, and just being aware of what it is that we're doing and have a higher spiritual awareness. That is how we do this. So my friends, my friends, let's dive in with all of these introductions under our belt and hopefully with a sense of what we're doing tonight. I'm hoping it's clear. So with a sense of all of that, let's dive in and learn some practical meditations that you and I can use to experience the sublime, to experience the divine in everyday activities. This, what we learned tonight, can be life-changing. So let's jump right in. I want to start our exploration. Oh, this is Act 1. Act 1, hungry food. All right, I want to begin Act 1 with a pop quiz. I hope you have your um, number two pencils. Kidding. This will not count on your permanent record or on your final grade, but I do have a question for you. And I would like everyone, anyone, if, if you wish to jump in on this, there's no right answer. It's a fun question. Feel free to jump in. What is your favorite? And of course, let's keep it kosher. But what is your favorite dinner food? Your favorite food to eat for dinner? Give me your favorite kosher food to eat for dinner. Go. Don't, don't wait for me. Jump right in. I'm mute. Jump right in. Brisket. Brisket. Okay. Salmon. Salmon. Kasha Varnishkas. Oh, Kasha Varnishka. Good. Good. Nice. What else? Pasta. Pasta. Okay. <laughs> nice. That's funny. Leftovers. Leftovers. Okay. Okay. Love it. Baked what else? Breast. What is it? Uh, baked chicken breast. Baked chicken breast. Okay. Good. What chicken else? Soup. Chicken soup. Sushi. Ah. Sushi. Oh, nice. Good. All right, give me give me a few more, a few more, a few more food items. Okay. All right, you don't have to. Now I want to ask another question. Here's my next question. And for those of you that answered already, I, I, I wouldn't mind if you jumped in on this one as well. If you found yourself alone on a desert island, let's just say you were alone on a desert island. And you were told in this reality show experience, right? Let's just say it was. You were told that you could bring with you one food for the duration. Yeah, one food. And you don't know how long this is going to be. You're going to have to survive on this one food. What's it going to be? Ice cream. Ice cream. <laughs> Peanut butter. Boy, oh boy. That's so Peanut funny. butter, ice cream. Okay. Hold on, but survival, survival might be, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't tried it, but I'm just saying 
Like for the long haul on, on ice cream or peanut butter, it might be a little bit challenging. Uh, here's, here's, what did you say? Mon. Mon. Oh, good. Right. It tastes like anything. Here, Spin- here's spinach. Sorry? Spinach. Okay. Here's what I want to bring out from this. There are the things that we like eating, right? Things that we enjoy eating. They taste good. It feels good. It's exciting. It's fun. It's, you know, whatever. We enjoy it. And then there are the things that are good for us to eat. It's what tastes, there's what, there's what tastes good. And then there's what's good for us. And they might not always be the same thing. So we might think that, um, we might think that a good food and enjoyable food to eat is sushi. But maybe we'll think that, you know, to keep us strong and healthy, if it worked for Popeye, Popeye the Sailor Man, whatever, however that song exactly went, right? I think there was a song, there was a version on Popeye the Sailor Mensch. Popeye the Sailor Mensch, after I eat, I bench, something like that. Anyway, so Popeye, yeah, he ate spinach, so spinach must be good. It must be a good thing to eat. In other words, there's what we eat for pleasure and then what we eat for necessity, and they're not always aligned. And so what's clear from all of this is that oftentimes when we eat what we like to eat, it may not be completely utilitarian. There may be an element of pleasure, desire, um, pleasing the senses. That may be the objective that drives it. And I would say much of our gastronomical experience centers around this type of hedonistic indulgence that satisfies the body, albeit momentarily, but that's the objective of that experience. And we'd be, and we'd be forgiven if that was the extent of our consumption, of our consumption practice that we consume in order to enjoy. But Judaism, that's normal, that's natural perhaps, but Judaism calls upon us to elevate the eating experience. After all, as we know from our previous meditations, as we know from this spiritual, from the spiritual discussion in this series, there is divine energy flowing through this experience right now, which means if I'm aware of that, if I'm connecting with the divine that's flowing through this experience, that I'm not just mindlessly, I'm not just eating for the sake of pleasure. There's a bit of a higher intention here. In other words, let me say, state this again in the positive. When we are attentive, when we are aware, when we're paying attention to the divine potential and purpose of eating, the experience is radically transformed on three levels, practically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we're going to do all three for all three areas, eating, sleeping, and working within eating. But now we're within eating, eating category. When we are mindful, when we're attentive, to the divine purpose of the experience. It is transformative on three dimensions, practically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I will break down all three right now. Actually, before I break down all three, let me just mention one more thing. How do we become more attentive when we eat? We said that if we're attentive to the divine in this experience, then it can be transformative. But how are we attentive to the divine in the experience? Here's an easy way. It's built into the Jewish. Um, it's built into the Jewish workflow of eating, if you will, um, and that is reciting a blessing before we eat the food. 
The blessing is we don't bless the food. That's not a thing. What, what are the, it's not blessing the food. It's, it's thanking God for the food. But that experience itself, pausing before we eat, to take a moment before we just put something in our mouths, to think, to meditate, to be attentive to the divine in this experience, to recite the blessing, and then to eat has the potential to radically transform every eating experience that we partake in, to change it physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And now let's explain all three. On a very practical level, step one, the practical shift. On a very practical level, tuning our minds to the divine energy and purpose of eating helps us pragmatically maintain control or at least better control of our consumption because we're recognizing that there's a purpose to our eating. We're eating to live and not the other way around, which is living to eat. Right? Some days we feel like that's the case. We wake up, oh, what's for breakfast? Oh, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? It's like we're living almost to get to the next meal, whereas mindful eating is recognizing that food is a means to an end. The end is living, not eating. So this intentionality transforms our eating from a space of mindlessness to a space of intentionality. Again, thinking about the divine, the divine energy, the divine purpose of food, of this experience, shifts the eating experience from a mindless, a mindless activity. Oh, let me just go to the fridge and open up the fridge and eat to something that is much more intentional. And if it's intentional, then I'm, on a very practical level, I will probably make healthier choices when I eat. When do I not make healthy choices when eating, right? When do we do this? It's when we're not thinking so much about the food. When we're thinking, we typically make better choices. So on a very pragmatic, on a very practical level, the, med the spiritual meditation of the divine, there being a divine energy, divine experience in this eating, that can help make it more mindful, which physically helps us eat a little bit more healthy. I got a... Um, you know, I have these food delivery apps. There's a few kosher restaurants that deliver to our neighborhood. Shocking, right? But it's, uh, it's true. It's messianic times, right? From an app, you can dial up and get some uh, kosher falafel and kosher pizza. Virginia Highlands, it's unbelievable. Anyway, I get this notification yesterday from one of these apps. I think it's Postmates, which was bought recently by Uber. Anyway, so it says something like this. Stop checking the fridge. There's no food there anyway order from us. It was like a little bit of a, right? A little bit of a, a little bit of a, you know, a cute, a little cute line. But the point is, how often do we check the fridge? For no reason, other than the fact that we're bored. And this is the idea of mindless eating. But when our minds, when we are tuned to the divine purpose, when we realize, one second, if the world is, is being saturated and permeated by divine energy, every experience, every moment is filled with divine. So this eating experience is also divine. All right, so let me think about what I'm doing. I'm not going to mindlessly eat. I'm going to eat intentionally. And that already puts us in a much healthier place. That's level one. Level two is an emotional shift. So there's a practical shift, healthier eating. Now there's an emotional shift. What's the emotional shift? When I pause before I eat and I recite that blessing and I think about God who's allowed me to be blessed with his food, 
And I think about what went into this food that I'm holding in my hand. I'm holding a loaf of bread. Wow. Where did this loaf of bread come from? Right? Maybe I got it from a store, right? But where did it really come from? It came from a farm. But how did it get to the farm? The farmer had to plow and had to plant and the rain had to fall and the sun had to shine and the wheat had to grow and then someone had to harvest the wheat and then the, the wheat and then it had to be ground into flour and then processed. And imagine how many steps and how many people and how many things along the way were involved. And that was just to create flour. And then someone would take the flour and mix it with the ingredients and make it into a dough and then bake it and then shape it. And well, probably have to shape it before you bake it. But be that as it may, we think about suddenly all of these activities and all of the hands, so to speak, not to creep us out, but all the hands that have touched, that have gone into creating this loaf of bread that is now in our hands. And it's unbelievable. And we realize, wait a second, this is, this is phenomenal. There's human activity. There's divine blessing. This food that I'm about to eat is an amalgam. It's the product of incredible investment of both human, animal, machine, and of course, divine input. This is what intentionality does for us. And thus, hear me out. When we actually then, following the blessing, take a bite of that bread, using my bread example we might be filled with a sense of utter and complete gratitude. Utter and complete gratitude, how blessed we are to be able to enjoy this incredible food, as opposed to, once again, eating mindlessly. Ah, more food, more food, more, more food. We, right, we so often eat mindlessly. But when we pause for a moment and become a little bit more intentional, in Hebrew, we call this kavana. Kavana means intentionality, when we have a little bit more intention and a little, bit more, a little bit more mindfulness, right? We're a little bit more locked into the moment. We're in the present moment. We're locked into the experience. And we start thinking about all that went into this food. Wow. Gratitude might fill our very beings. In fact, there's something so interesting, something that's very interesting custom when it comes to eating bread. Um, I'm going to read this one. It's text number three. Take a look. Text number three. This is page number 153. This is the tour, known in Hebrew as the tour, the Balaturim, halachic genius, master of Gematria, Jewish numerology, Hebrew numerology, um, unbelievable scholar, lived in medieval times. Look what he writes about fingers in the bread. I'm going to read this one. Before reciting the blessing over bread, put both your hands on the bread. For your 10 fingers reflect the 10 mitzvot associated with bread making. Let me just break that down right now. When, if you have a loaf of bread in your hand, what that means is 10 mitzvot, theoretically at least, were done with that bread. They are, number one, to avoid plowing with two species of animals together. Number two, to avoid growing forbidden mixtures of plant species, kalayim. To leave leket, shecha, and peah. Those are the three distinct forms of overlooked harvest uh, for the poor to collect. To bring the first fruit bikurim to Jerusalem. I mean, some of these were only back in the day in times of the temple, but nonetheless. To donate the truma tithe to a kohen to observe the rites of the maeser rishon or maeser sheni tithes. And to donate a portion of dough, challah, to a kohen. So when we eat, 
we can think about the farmer, we can think about God, we think about the mitzvot that were involved, the beautiful mitzvot, the compassion, the love, the giving, the sharing that was involved before my loaf of bread, the field from whence this bread was harvested, the wheat was harvested, the field itself was a mitzvah field because part of it went to the poor. Again, in ancient Jewish law, in, in Israel, this is what was done. And so there's a meditation already. The bread is not just bread. It's a deeper experience. That is an emotionally transformative experience. I'm using, so hear me out for a second. I'm using my divine meditation to transform my eating, my gastronomical experience. So far on two levels. Number one, I'm going to eat healthier. Number two, when I eat, I'll be more mindful and thus experience more gratitude. It's going to be emotionally a richer experience. Um, Ray, did you have a question? Or no? Okay, I saw the hand go up, but maybe maybe not. Okay, now I want to sp speak about the spiritual shift. Each category, we have three categories. Each category has three shifts within each category. Three within three. I hope that's not too confusing. So we have practical, emotional, and spiritual shifts within each of the three activities. So let's do the third of the first, which is the spiritual shift within eating. On a spiritual level, becoming aware of the divine life force within the food allows us to nourish not just our bodies, but our souls. And here's the big idea. Just as food contains physical energy, physical, I don't know, calories to uh, sustain our bodies, the, the food that we have in front of us, let's just talk about bread again. The bread in our hands contains a spiritual energy that enlivens the soul. The spiritual energy of the food actually enlivens the soul, as the Baal Shem Tov explains beautifully. Take a look at text 4a in your books or on the screen. I am going to read this one as well. When God declared, let the earth give forth living souls or let the earth produce vegetation and fruit trees, those very words created everything. And those same utterances continue to function as the inner life of that which was created through them. When we take a fruit or any food and we set a blessing over it with proper intent, articulating the words, blessed are you, God, mentioning God's sacred name, the spiritual energy responsible for bringing that fruit into existence is activated. This occurs because everything was created through the divine name and our articulation of God's name and the blessing awakens the divine energy that flows from God's name within the fruit. Then the awakened energy within the fruit provides spiritual sustenance for our own soul. And he says, this can only work with kosher food, substances that God himself directed us to sublimate from mundane to divine. This is the deeper significance of the verse. Know that a person does not live by bread alone, but rather by whatever comes forth from the mouth of God does a person live. It is not the physical bread alone that supports life. Rather, when we utter God's name in a blessing and activate the spiritual energy, that is what gives life to a person or more precisely to the soul that animates us. Let me explain this in my own words. It's a long, longer reading and it's a bit, uh, it's, it's kind of spiritually deep. I'm just going to give the, the short, quick version of this. The food, every food item, I mean, we're talking about kosher food right now, but food items, kosher food items have both a body and a soul. The body is the physical food. The soul is the spiritual energy within the food. When we are intentional, when we have mindfulness, when we recite the blessing before we eat, that unlocks 
the spiritual energy of the food, and then that spiritual energy nourishes our soul, which is why the Kabbalists explain, why the mystics explain why we need to eat in the first place. Why, why do we need to eat? Why? why? Why didn't God create us in such a way that we wouldn't need to eat? Imagine God created us. We're good to go. Don't need to eat. Why not? What, what's wrong with that? What we'd be missing, in addition to physical sustenance, because that could have been taken care of, is the spiritual sustenance that is precisely in the food. The spiritual light, the spiritual energy in the food is what nourishes our soul. The body is nourished by the body of the food. Our soul is nourished by the soul of the food. And all of this is directly based on the meditations that we've developed over the last few weeks. Knowing that God, divine energy, is within everything, including that piece of bread. Knowing that that divine energy is continuously pumping this, uh, pumping life into that thing allows us to recognize and to feel that as we eat that item, the soul of that food is helping act is 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 um is helping sustain our soul itself. Our soul is deriving energy from the soul of the food, and moreover, the mystics tell us there's another text. We don't have time to read all the texts. I'm going to paraphrase it. It's I think four B. The Bashemtiv continues to say that when you and I find ourselves in a moment of craving a food, it's like, oh, I could really use whatever. Again, assuming it's kosher, I have a craving for food. The Bashemtiv says, you know why you have a craving? You know why? Because the soul energy of the food wants you to eat it, because its purpose is to give you energy. That's why it exists. The food exists to give you energy, spiritual energy. And so the soul says, let's go. Come on, eat me. Let's go. I want you to get the energy. That's my purpose. My purpose is fulfilled when I energize you. And so when we find ourselves craving a particular food, it's possible, he says. Not always. Because the evil inclination can, uh, you know, trick us as well into thinking something is within a higher purpose, but it might not be. But sometimes, oftentimes, the craving itself exists because there is a spark, a divine spark in that food waiting to energize our soul. My friends, this is powerful. And it constitutes the difference between higher eating and lower eating. We, we enter tonight's class, I think, with the perspective that God is found in the synagogue and not the lunchroom, right? That God is found in the experience of prayer and not in the experience of eating. And so tonight, I want to debunk this myth and tell you straight up that there is no divide. There's no mechitza. There's no divide. God is as home. Sorry, God is as at home, I think that makes sense, is as at home in the synagogue as God is in the lunchroom. No difference. The food, if the food itself, that experience can be holy. And it's holy when we have the right intention. Again, and the intention helps us on three levels. Number one, practically, we're going to eat a little bit healthier. More mindful equals more mindful eating. Number two, we'll feel more emotionally connected to God, to the people that went into, that, that, that were that help produce this food. It's a, it's, a, it's a more enriching experience. And number three, spiritually. There's an elevatory experience here. There's a transformative experience here. It's soul transference. It's energy from the food um, uh, feeding the energy of our soul. And that is the purpose of why this food was created in the first place. So we're feeding ourselves. 
we're feeding the body, we're feeding our soul, we're achieving the purpose, we're unlocking the purpose of that item's existence, that loaf of bread, the wheat, the farmer, the field, the sun, the rain, all of that was intended to help energize our soul. And that experience itself now is transformative and holy. Find God in everything that you do. All right. With this, we've set the stage, hopefully, for our first meditation. First meditation is all about eating. And so I will pull this up now on my end, and then I'm going to share my screen with you. Let's get comfortable, please. Okay. We don't dichotomize between the holy and the secular. In other words, everything has meaning. Everything is valuable. Everything is precious. Even the most mundane aspects of life contain deep spiritual meaning. And we relate to that in a very profound way. Even eating. You have been given a raisin. Just hold it in your hand and I'll tell you what to do with it. So gently close your eyes and just become aware of your five senses. Become aware of what your eyes see at the back of your eyelids. Become aware of what you can hear in the room, even sounds within you. Become aware of the feel of the raisin, its texture. Anticipate the taste of the raisin once you begin to eat it. And become aware of any fragrance around you. I would like you to take the raisin and adopt a particular kavana, focused intention. And the focused intention is that you are going to borrow the soul energy of that raisin and allow it to become part of your own energy system. You'll do that by eating it. To adopt a focused kavana we prepare ourselves 
by saying a bracha. A bracha, commonly translated as blessing, means a way of drawing down a channel for the soul spark within the raisin to become elevated through. Say it with me or just respond, Amen. Baruch Ato Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'olam Bayrei Pri Ha'etz. And begin chewing. And as you chew the raisin slowly, many times, become aware of the different textures that you encounter. And as the saliva mixes with the skin of the raisin, with the body of the raisin, it changes even more. Become aware of the sweetness of its taste. All these aspects that are the product of the spark soul of that raisin. Sweetness produces uplift of emotions. That is the soul spark within. Listen to your teeth chewing the raisin, thereby making it much more amenable to digestion. All the wondrous ways that Hashem created the world, all just for elevating the soul spark in the seemingly mundane and ordinary. Be prepared now to swallow the remains of the raisin. And as you do, sense how it becomes one within you. its vitamins and goodness being extracted through the bloodstream into the needs of the body and the soul spark within being released to a much higher spiritual state because of your bracha. Everything we do in life can be elevated and become much more meaningful if we understand the spiritual dynamics. Soul sparks exist in everything. When we do the right thing, we free the soul spark from its prison 
channeling it to its higher source. And we become elevated in the process. Okay, so um, I hope you enjoyed that meditation, even without a raisin. If you happen to have a raisin nearby, man, that was some good anticipation. But even without the raisin, I think the beauty of that meditation is that you can almost taste it even without tasting it. Are you with oh, me on that? Was it just me? I don't know. Hope, hopefully not just me. Um, there's, there's a certain power in the ability to connect with an experience so deeply. And that's the point of this. If the divine, if everything we've set up until now is true, if God is real and the divine energy is the soul of all existence of the entire universe and the divine energy flows within, within every single individual item, constantly, continuously providing it energy and recreating it. If all of that is true, then this raisin, it's not just a raisin. It's not just a raisin. It's not just a dancing raisin. Remember those dancing raisins? Yeah. It's not just a dancing raisin. It's a holy raisin, Batman. It's holy. It's divine. It has a divine energy that is intended for our souls. As we heard before, as I mentioned, as we experienced in this meditation. All right. So that concludes our section on eating. Let's, I want to give an opportunity a minute or two, any questions or comments on the opening section about food, a relationship with food? Questions, comments? Okay, I hope this has given you food for thought. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, not to my credit, but I do say brachas, but I don't know the percentage, but oftentimes it's just rote. That, that's my problem. That's my yeah, is it, well, I got, I got, to, I got, I got to leave. I got to leave. Get out of the door. I got to right. Grab, it's, it's, right. It's, right. Not a Friday night, but uh, Richard, uh, this is not confession. We don't do confession. What are you? What are you What's the confession? I'm kidding. No, you're you're raising a very you're raising a very good point, and that is sometimes we might say the blessing, but miss out on the intention. Yeah. We might just say it. It's verbal, but we're not actually stopping to think. Good. So look, it's, it's, one it, is, it's, it's a trap to fall into. It's like davening. Right. Yeah. It becomes the, the more accustomed we are to it, which is a good thing, potentially. <laughs> the danger is that it might become a habit that we don't think about, it's like brushing our teeth. Are we mindful? Like I'm brushing my tooth. I know dentists have names for all the teeth. Am I brushing number or whatever this one? We brush our teeth. Well, who's thinking about it? But with, when it comes to the blessing, good. So I, it's a, I appreciate you, you raising it as a point of uh, a point to, 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 to be aware of. And I think that's the point. The point is we need to be aware of it as we're sending the blessing, not just to try to knock it out. As you said, get it out the door, but to be mindful for a second. What is it? What is happening? I'm feeding my body. Let me do it in a healthy way. I'm connecting with so much that went into this. It's, a, it's, a, it's an uplifting. I feel gratitude and humility and connectedness and spiritual. Okay, so with that, let's jump immediately into section number two, or as I call it, act two from under the covers. Now we're going to talk about sleeping. Many of us take sleep for granted. Well, many of us don't take sleep for granted, but we might take sleep for granted because it, once again, it might not be something we're thinking about too much. 
It's just something that we do. But by now we know that everything we do can be divine. Everything really is divine. We can attune ourselves, tune in to the divine energy within every activity, including sleep, because everything is sacred, even sleep. So let's now for a few moments explore a Jewish meditation on sleep that can fundamentally shift how we experience sleep on every level, practically, emotionally, and spiritually, the same three ideas within sleep now. Our sleep can be completely transformed with the right mindfulness, with the right kavanah intention, with the right meditation on all three levels, practically, emotionally, and spiritually. But first, I have a question for you. Imagine somebody created a pill that would allow you to work nonstop, never get tired, and never need to sleep. Would you take that pill? I'll say it again. Imagine somebody created a pill. You take the pill, and suddenly you're on 24-7. You don't need to sleep. You're good to go. What I'm trying to say is it's not that you're going to get tired and you won't be able to sleep. You won't get tired. You'll be good to go. Raise of hand. Would you take that pill? Who would take that pill? Maybe. I see a lot of skepticism. It's like, how do I know the pill works? You don't know the pill works, but I'm giving you an example. I'm giving you a hypothetical. Imagine a pill works 100%. You don't need to sleep. You're good to go. Would you take it? It's, attra- it's, it's, it's attractive. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, an, it's very compelling. Huh? A pill? And I could be on and up and, and do my thing constantly without interruption? Maybe. Maybe not a bad idea. So here's what I want to say. First of all, that pill does not exist yet. Number one. Number two, more importantly for our conversation. Why didn't God create us in a way that we don't need to sleep? If it, if it might sound like a good idea that we could just keep on going, so then how come God didn't create us in that way? Why did God make us in such a way that we need sleep? Why do we get tired? Why is there a day and a night? Why, why that whole cycle? Here's what we know. Based on everything we've discussed, if God created the human body in a way that we need sleep, that's divine. There's a purpose. It's holy, right? We might not know why yet, but the first thing we know is God intentionally, the Kavanah created us to need sleep. It's not an accident. It's not a fluke. It's not a mistake. It's not, it's not a flaw. It's a feature. God created us intentionally that we have the need to sleep. So there's something useful and positive about it. It's not just the way it is. It's meaningful. It's profoundly meaningful, practically, emotionally, and spiritually. Let's jump into the practical message, the practical meaning of sleep. Okay. If we didn't need sleep, imagine if we wouldn't need to sleep, if we took that pill of God created us in a way that we could keep on going, if our lives consisted of one long day, you know what the problem would be? Life would be one long day. We, it's not that we would get tired, but it's that we would never have the opportunity to have a fresh start. We would be stuck in what we have, in what we had, because that would be just what was ongoing, would be the same thing, just continuing. Sleep allows us 
such a gift. A very practical level. Sleep allows us the most tremendous gift to turn off and then to turn back on. Refreshed, renewed, re-energized. And again, I know I'm giving you a situation where you, we would never get tired. But you know what? If we never got tired, we would still never have a new day. It wouldn't be new. It would be the same old day. Yeah. You ever hear the expression, somebody asks you a question, let me sleep on it. Let me sleep on it. It means like when I wake up, I'll have a fresh perspective. Oh, let me sleep on it. Tomorrow, I'll give you the answer. There would be no tomorrow if there was no sleep. It would be one long day. So on a very practical level, sleep gives us the opportunity to have a new day, a new opportunity, a new start. And what a blessing that is. When we are mindful, kavana, when we are intentional about sleep, when we think about sleep as a gift from God, divine gift of sleep, divine gift of creating our bodies in a way that needs sleep, then we can realize the beauty, the practical beauty of sleep and having a fresh start. That's on a practical level. Let's talk about the emotional shift that happens with sleep. Recognizing the divine energy and purpose of sleep allows us not just to wake up fresh, but listen to this, to go to sleep in a much healthier way. So hear me out for a moment. The fact that we need to sleep and the fact that that God created us in a way that we need to sleep. And the fact that when we sleep, our souls are a little bit out of our bodies, so to speak. We're having a taste. The Talmud says sleep is one-sixtieth of death. It's a taste of death. It's a, it's a small, small glimmer of, 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 of death. That itself can sober us up and to allow us to be a little bit more contemplative before we go to sleep, before we turn over our soul, so to speak, before we let go. One second, one second. Am I ready to let go? Have I finished all the things that I need to finish? And not all the tasks, because there will always be more tasks, but are there issues in relationships that I need to fix before I go to sleep? Am I upset at someone that I need to let go of? Is someone upset at me that I need to make amends about, right? Is there some sort of emotional barrier between me and someone else, between me and myself that I need to fix or to heal before I go to sleep? This is part of the process of going to sleep in a meditative mindset. When we go to sleep, recognizing that this is a gift from God intentionally created for us, for our well-being, not just practically, but emotionally, we can then tap into that energy and it transforms the experience. It's not just going to sleep, falling asleep, you know, like, oh, I just collapsed in bed. No, 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 no. There's a preparation before going to bed. There are prayers before going to bed. There's a ritual before going to bed. And part of that is letting go, letting go, asking forgiveness and letting go so that we're emotionally complete and whole before we turn over our consciousness into that unknown area, into that abyss, if you will, of sleep. Let me share my screen once again. And I want to read to you the following text, text number eight. Look at this, really beautiful text. Um, okay, we're skipping some texts over here. Text six, text number seven and eight. Look at this. The Zohar, 
The holy Zohar, the holy work of Kabbalah says, before lying down to sleep each night, we should take stock of our deeds throughout that day. That means to think about what we did. We should repent for whatever we did wrong and ask God for compassionate forgiveness. Before we close out the day, before we end the day, we should be thinking about what do I need to fix? What do I need to say sorry for? What will be better tomorrow? There's an expression in Yiddish, Margin, tomorrow will be way different, way better. Tomorrow will be much better than today. That's a healthy attitude. And that happens when we're contemplative, we're meditative at night before we go to sleep. So understand this, meditation can transform the way we go to sleep. It's not just going to sleep. Yeah, we have, um, you know, the late show or the late, late show or the late, late, late show on whatever it is, you know, a little comedy and we fall to sleep, fall asleep to some, you know, I'm going to date myself now to some Letterman or Leno. No, this, I know, I know they're not in the air anymore. Whatever, it's fine. Um, yeah, that's not how we go to sleep. We go to sleep like a yid. We go to sleep with meditation. We think about our day. We think about what needs to be fixed. And in our prayers, we also think about all those that we can forgive and just let go. Who wants to go to sleep holding on to resentment? It's like poison. You want to go to sleep with poison? Drinking poison? It's not healthy. Let go. You ask for God to let go, and you also let go. That's the meditation of sleep. That's all emotion. That's still emotion. What's the highest level, the spiritual shift? Listen to this. Tuning into the divine energy can help us appreciate what sleep is really about. It's not just physically refreshing. It's not just emotionally healing, which we spoke about just now, but it's profoundly spiritual. You see, throughout the day, every day throughout the day, our soul, the neshama, is stuck inside the body. Typically, it's stuck inside the body. And most of the day, most of the time, it's very hard. We've discussed this throughout the classes. It's hard to hear the sound of the voice, the sound of the neshama, the voice of the soul. It's in there, but it's a little bit muffled. It's like um, you have an alarm clock that won't go off and you put the pillows on top to kind of quiet the, the alarm clock, right? It's, it's, it's making noise, but you can't hear it so much. What happens when we sleep? What happens when we sleep? The mind goes away because we're not rash, we're not thinking rationally. The heart stops getting so excited about everything that we see and, and think about. And what happens to the soul? The soul is able to kind of go above ground and, and, and look out. And it says the soul reconnects with its source on high. The soul plugs back in. You know, when you have a cell phone at night, you know what you need to do? You need to recharge it. Depending on the cell phone, maybe every night, maybe every other night, probably every night, you plug in your cell phone before you go to sleep. Yeah, that's what happens with the soul. The soul plugs in to its source. The soul plugs into God every single night when we sleep. The soul climbs out of the body a little bit, a little bit, um, to reconnect and recharge spiritually. It is such a beautiful and powerful experience. Let me share with you an, a text that speaks to this beautiful spiritual experience. Our sages instituted. Yeah, here we go. Our sages instituted the practice of resetting the verse, I deposit my spirit into your hand each night before we go to sleep, just after reciting the, bedti the bedtime Shema. We should meditate on the idea that we are depositing our souls as if on loan and consider 
to whom we are providing the deposit. Our souls then draw life from on high, that is, spiritual life. The soul is recharged every night when we go to sleep. That's the way it is. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful idea. And this is the meditation, the, the, the intentional meditation of sleep. So again, before and after this class, right? Before the class, we would have thought sleep, it's not holy. It's not sleep. It's not spiritual. Sleep. I go to sleep because I'm tired. No, 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 no. There's no such thing. I'm just tired. Who made the body? Who made tired? Who made you? There's divine energy flowing with everything. That's the whole purpose of this course. There's divine energy everywhere. Everything is divine. So if you have to go to sleep, if I have to go to sleep, if we get tired, that's by divine intention. What's the purpose? Number one, to give you and I a new day, a new start, a fresh slate. You know, you have a boy, the chalkboard, it's all full of stuff. Erase it. New day, fresh slate. Etch a sketch. Shake it up. You create new art on your little etch a sketch uh, thing. Yeah, that's the new day. Emotionally, the opportunity <clears throat> when we go to sleep to let go, to ask God to let go of any you know negativity on our end. We should let go of any grudges that we're holding. Let go emotionally, cleanse. It's a blessing. And spiritually, the soul is now recharging. Beautiful, beautiful, powerful ideas. So we don't just fall asleep. We don't just hit the sack. We don't just, you know, go to sleep. We intentionally prepare ourselves to hand over our soul and to have a divine experience. That is the transformative power of Jewish meditation on the experience of sleep. And so now we're going to get into our sleep meditation. So give me a moment. Let me load this up over here. And we are going to get into our second meditation, the meditation of sleep. Such a mystery, falling asleep, that absolutely beautiful transition as you move from consciousness into some state of subconsciousness. And what you're doing is allowing yourself to move upwards, wander your soul in higher realms where it is energized for the next morning. Gently close your eyes. And just become aware of waves rolling in from the sea. Observe one wave as it finally lands on the shoreline, losing its form, its last gasp, with its wetness extending, and then the excess gently rolling back into the sea. 
the cycle of a wave, the cycle of life. Are you aware of the moment of falling asleep when the wave loses its form and spreads on the shoreline? Do you prepare yourself for the journey of your soul at night? when the soul rises to higher realms, enjoying a tutorial to further enlighten it, give it peace and rest, to become refreshed by morning time. Do you have complete trust in your sleep state? Do you willingly allow your soul to travel on high? That state of trust, bitachon, is so necessary for a good night's sleep. Biyodoi avkid ruchi. I deposit my soul in God's hands. The soul has been given to me by the manufacturer with a warranty. And that warranty includes nightly gain, improvement, refreshment. And that's why I sleep. Prepare yourself before you go to sleep to have a state of confidence that the journey will allow you to be a better you next morning. Say the Shema before you go to sleep to create that sense of absolute confidence as you deposit your soul on high. By doing so, the depth of your sleep allows the soul's return to be one that brings you strength and confidence the next morning. Prepare for a good sleep. Be confident in elevating your soul and allow the next day to be a day of further growth and the soul's pathway through the body to reach out and make the world a much better place. Okay, I, I hope you all remembered my, my, uh, my word of caution at the beginning of the class. We're going to do a sleep meditation, but don't use that meditation to fall asleep. If you want to use that meditation to fall asleep, I will say you can certainly access it after the class. Our course website 
myjli.com slash meditation has all the videos, all the meditations for you to review, to look at and review. Okay, so we've just concluded the second part of our three parts. Again, we have three parts of conversation, three areas of mundane life that we're looking at to try to transform those experiences. The idea here is that everything is divine. Everything has a divine spark. Everything has a divine purpose. Everything is powered by God. Everything has a higher way, has a higher modality. There's like a toggle, like lower level, higher level. Everything has that. E, um, the first activity we looked at was eating. Eating could be done low. It could be done high. It could be just animalistic. It could be intentional. What does intentional look like? It's healthy. It's emotionally connective. And it's spiritually satisfying. That was food. Sleep. I'm just quickly recapping. That's what I'm doing now. Sleep. Lower toggle, higher toggle. Sleep could be low and mundane and I fell asleep. Or it could be higher, mindful, spiritual, divine. What does that look like? Number one, when I go to sleep, I wake up refreshed. It's a new day, new opportunity. I look for new opportunities in each day. I go to sleep. Then I go to sleep emotionally healthy, letting go of what I need to let go of and asking others to let go of what I need to be let go of. Healthy. And third, and I love the way Rabbi Wolf said it in the meditation, the warranty. Nightly refer. I'm at. I'm tweaking what he said a little bit. The the nightly refurbishing. It's imagine like you you buy a car, and imagine every night you're able to you park it in a special garage, and they clean it, and they shine it, and they vacuum it, and they oil change, and they check the tires. They they totally polish it up every single night. Oh, that's what happens with the soul. Nice and shiny. It's got. It's got that new soul smell every single morning. Ah, it's brand new. It's beautiful. It's buffy. It's buffed. It's shiny. It's great. Layer of wax on it. Ah, sealed. New windshield wipers ready to go. Okay. Next is the final area of our focus tonight. And that is working, earning money. I don't know if there's another area in life in which we would say, wow, that is mundane. That is physical. That's materialistic. That's not spiritual. Spirituality, prayer, meditation, work, spiritual work, work is no way. Work is not spiritual. That's what we might say coming into tonight's class. But now we know the truth can't be the case. Divine energy is flowing within everything, even our jobs. That means that even work has to have a higher level, has to have a higher meditation. There's a higher experience in work itself. What is it? Once again, I ask a question. We're going to keep this rhetorical because we don't have a lot of time here. But the question is, why do we work? Most people would say to earn money. Then we would ask the question, so why do you need money? Most people would say to buy stuff. Why do you need to buy stuff? Uh, to live. Why do you need to live? Okay, you see, we can keep on pushing the question. But the, the ultimate objective is, the ultimate idea here is that it's the work that helps us live. But more importantly, if we ask the, the follow-up question, if we didn't need to work to, to, to earn money, if let's say we hit the lottery, we, we, you know, we, we won the lottery and we got, you know, whatever it is, would we still work? You might say, no, no way, not going to work. No, 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 no. I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go to the Bahamas. And that's it. After a little bit, you might get bored of the Bahamas. I'm just saying, you say, no, 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 trust me, I got this. 
I, trust me, I think that human beings need a little bit more stimulation. And there's something about something about work that draws us toward it, even whether it's the money or it's not the money, something about it. So let's talk about spiritual shifts when it comes to or shifts when it comes to um, work, comes to working on a practical level, on a practical level, meditating on the divine energy, the divine life within work reminds us of the mitzvah we have the practical, very real mitzvah we have to support ourselves and our families. The Torah says, that Hashem, God, will bless you in all that you do, which means there's a mitzvah to work, a mitzvah to earn money. It's a mitzvah. Take care of ourselves and our families. It's a mitzvah. So on a very basic level, we're not getting very spiritual yet. Very basic level, this, this is a mitzvah. It's, it's a good deed. It's a divine commandment. So where, where do we find the divine? Where do we find God in work? Because it's a mitzvah to go to work to support our families. But let's go further. That's practical. Let's go further. Let's talk about emotional, an emotional level, emotional shift. I mentioned before about you know, winning the lottery and still wanting to work. Why? There's this beautiful Talmudic statement, which we're going to read right now. And I think you might find this to resonate within you. Uh, it's text number 12. You've noticed that we're skipping around some text. Take a look. The Talmud says, a person prefers a single measure of their own, of their own labor, rather than a gift of nine measures of someone else's labor. It is dear to the person because they have worked hard for it, explains Rashi. In other words, if you, if a person has a choice of $10 that they earned, yeah, or um, $90 that they just got as a gift, okay, uh, I might take the 90 But theoretically, the Talmud is saying, yeah, that a person would prefer their own, what they, what they earn themselves. Why? Because emotionally, it's satisfying. Because we all have a desire to be co-creators. You know, we're creating the image of God. God is the creator. The first thing we know about God is that God created heaven and earth. God is a creator. God makes things happen. You and I have the innate need, the innate desire to be productive, to make things happen. So not only, listen to this, not only is work a mitzvah, it also satisfies a basic emotional need that we have to be productive, to be contributors, to be givers. We don't just want to be takers in life. Life is not satisfying to be a taker. We want to be a giver. That's an emotional need that comes from a divine place, the image of God. God is a giver. God is a creator. We also need to be givers and creators. So already we have this beautiful idea. When we go to work in the morning, when we go to work in the morning, we might say, oh, got to go to work. Oh, nine to five. I clock in. I clock out. Oh, it's such a drag. One second. Divine meditation. God is everywhere. Even in my job. Even in my job, God is here. What does that mean? My job is holy. It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to work and support my family. Number one. Number two, it allows me to create, to give, to produce. That itself is divine. And finally, number three, and this is the big idea, the spiritual shift. 
And that is that I can find God in the workplace, in the boardroom, like no area in life. The opportunities, the spiritual opportunities that exist in work are unparalleled because so much of, of work involves things that are against what God wants. In other words, let me just be very practical here. So much of the workplace involves cutting corners and not being so honest and, you know, stepping on people to get ahead and compromising values to make an extra dollar, etc. And so work, like very few areas in life, gives us the opportunity to assert our Jewish values, to work like a mensch, to be honest, to be ethical, to be menschy to earn money and give tzedakah, give charity from that money, to elevate the experience, that trend, to, to see God's hand in the world like, like few areas, to find how God has orchestrated this deal to work out with this person and this, this business deal and everything works out unbelievably. Seeing God in business. We can see God in work like very few places. It's hard you can find God in the synagogue when you study Torah, but you're not seeing God in the real world. Where do you see God in the real world? Go out into the real world. You'll see God in the real world. In business, you'll, you can find God. This is what the meditation, what the divine meditation, and how it enhances work. Whereas work, we might have thought is, oh, so it's, it's annoying Mondays. Oh, I hate going back to work, right? It's boring. It's annoying. It's mundane. It's, 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 it's like it's mind-numbing. One second. Practically, it's a mitzvah. Emotionally, you're a creator. And spiritually, you can find God and you can make this work a divine experience if you so choose to do so. And so, my friends, this takes us to the end of our lesson. And I have one more meditation, but we'll do the work meditation after I conclude the lesson like we usually do. I'll wrap it up and then we'll show the last meditation about working. And so, my friends, in conclusion, what we presented tonight is one, of the, is one of the big ideas of Jewish spirituality and Jewish meditation. And that is that if it's true, if it's, and it is, if it's true that God is truly everywhere, if Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere, like the kid's song goes, if that's true, then God is present when I eat. God is present when I sleep. And God is present when I work. All three experiences can be done in a higher way. They could be done in a lower way. I can eat mindlessly. I can sleep mindlessly. I can work mindlessly. Or I can choose to be aware of Hashem, of the divine that's flowing through every experience in the kitchen, in the bedroom, in the office the divine that's flowing through all of these spaces. And then that shifts everything. I eat with intention. I eat healthier with gratitude and with a spiritual focus. I sleep creating a fresh start, letting go of negativity and drawing fresh spiritual energy. And I work to provide for my family, to be a co-creator, and to realize the divine in the physical universe. My friends, it's transformative. 
Jewish meditation is not only for the spiritual stuff, it's also for the mundane stuff. And Jewish meditation helps transform the mundane to the sublime, the practical to the spiritual. It helps radically shift everything that we do. All right, my friends, this takes us to the end of the lesson. This week, what's the homework? The homework is let's practice the meditations, the mindfulness that we've learned tonight to help us eat, sleep, and work with more meaning, purpose, and intentionality. It will absolutely change our lives. And I will show the work meditation in just another moment after I do a few quick announcements. So first of all, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoy the class. I hope you, you enjoy the various forms of meditation and the various degrees of intentionality that we can achieve in three areas. There are more areas of life, of course, that are mundane, that seemingly mundane, but these are three areas. So I hope you enjoyed it. Number one. Number two, next week, we have our final session, which is called Mind and Matter. The lesson is called Mind and Matter. We'll explore the intersection between the two M's, meditation and mitzvot. How does meditation transform the mitzvah experience? And how do mitzvot themselves serve as forms of meditation? Join me next week to find out. I'm very excited to do this with you. A few quick announcements. Two weeks from tonight, we just announced today. Two weeks from tonight, we're launching a new course. It's called You Be the Judge. It's a course that takes you into the Jewish court, the Betin. If you're a fan of true crime, if you like solving mysteries, if you like exploring legal dynamics, then you're going to love You Be the Judge. Real cases, real Talmudic texts. You're going to study them. We'll take a vote. Well, it's not like a reality show where it's not like Judge Judy, where it actually is going to affect the case. But we will have the opportunity to experience the thrill of Talmudic study and practical legal application and open our eyes to the thrilling arena of Jewish law and Jewish ethics, criminal and civil law. So join me in two weeks, right after this course ends. Next week, the following week, we'll launch immediately on Zoom, same time, 8 p.m. You be the judge. It's on our website, intownjewishacademy.org slash judge. You be the judge. You can bring your own, maybe not your own raisin, but bring your own gavel and your own robe. And let's uh, let's do this right. So that's that. Next, we have a few Purim classes coming up. On Sunday, March 13th and, and Monday, March 14th, we have uh, Behind the Mask and Purim Boot Camp, all classes to get you in the, into the spirit of the holidays. So look at that on, the, on, the, on our website as well. We also have a Parenting Masterclass and a Joy Factory Workshop. Stay tuned. Check it out on the website except for the Joy Factory, which is not yet up, but check out the other stuff. It is a lot of fun. All right, without further ado, I think we're ready for the meditation. After the meditation, we can schmooze for a few minutes if you'd like, but let's get this loaded up for everyone's benefit. Okay, here we go. I'm gonna share my screen. And sit back, relax, and enjoy. <music> Why do you go to work? 
every day. Whether that work be in an office, or a home office, or housework. Why do you do this? Is it to save money for the vacation at the end of the year? Or is it to give yourself and your family security for survival? Or do you do it to help self-realize, fulfillment, higher purpose? Since such a significant part of your life is at work, it's important to imbue it with some sense of importance, which it is. Gently close your eyes and picture yourself walking along a gentle sloping path upwards a hillside and as you move upwards seeing the scenery around you it feels so pleasant so free so good Is that the feeling you have when you go to work? And if not, why not? Work seems to repeat the same mechanics. But think about it. You're an artist at work. The artist has the same mechanics, the same paintbrush, the equivalent canvas, every single time. And yet, each opportunity is a new work of art. Your work has to be imbued with purpose, mission, destiny. When you speak with your colleagues, you can change their lives. Speaking with confidence, speaking positively, very much affects the lives of those around you. With those words, you are an artist with a paintbrush. The more you smile at work, even without speaking, lifts the spirits of those around you. You affect them profoundly. The way you conduct yourself, personal excellence, self-mastery, gives those around you a sense of pride in the same work. The mechanics may be the same, but the mechanics are only the means of you to express your true artistry.
allow your work to be clay in the hands of a sculptor changing your attitude giving your work a sense of purpose meaning changes the world and certainly changes the lives of those around you and this will reflect in you you will see how your own life becomes changed positive uplifted happy through your work work is important it occupies so much of your day allow yourself to be the artist in the studio in context of your work and that way allow the world to be a beautiful garden that everyone can walk in with admiration gently focus again on your breath breathing in through the nose and out through the nose feeling the coolness of the air as it enters and the warmth of the air as it exits begin moving your fingers and your toes in the room where you are move your fingers move your toes become aware of where you are now and gently begin opening your eyes coming all the way back into the here and now right it's good to see everybody i hope you enjoyed the meditations we had little extra doses of meditation tonight three meditations in one 90 minute session a lot of meditation um once again you can find all of these meditations really for all the lessons even some we haven't done in the class myjli.com slash meditation all the lessons and the lesson meditations are all there for posterity, you can check it out and enjoy it. All right. Um, maybe we'll give a few minutes, maybe three or four minutes, or five minutes of comments, questions. If you have a question, comment, feel free to jump in. Everybody? Everybody? Yeah. Let me real briefly, two things about business and work. One is I've heard that when you go to the next world, the first thing you're asked is how you deal with your business students. That's the first thing, which seems kind of ironic. And just out of place. How do you business? How do you do in business? And the next comment is that for a Jew in business, for Jew specifically in business, it's a kiddush Hashem 
to do things honestly because we're the, the stereotypes are so anti that are so this Jew and that you know the whole Jew yeah. not getting a cheap deal and all this stuff. So it's it's really uh, it's, it's amazing if you if you if you do that with people, they want. I think you can see their you see their, their their minds went wow, he's an honest guy and he's yeah. Jew. Well, it kind of shatters my my image. Who would have thought? Yeah, no, very, very excellent. Both both points, excellent. And I will say that Act Three, I called Heaven's Password for that reason. I didn't have a chance to mention in the class. The reason why I called it Heaven's Password is because to get into heaven, first question is: So, did you work honestly? Were you honest in business? That's the first question. Afterwards, it's how did your Torah study go? How did your other things? The first question is about work. Why? Because work is meant to be a spiritual experience as well. It's meant to be transformed into a, into a holy experience. That's the question. It's did you work with faith? It means either with honesty or it means did you integrate your faith with your work? That's the question. That's the beautiful question. Um, Mariana, I saw you, uh, you had something. Yeah, I love the class. It's, it's incredible. Thank you very much. And my question is about the energy of the kosher food. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like something like different, like the normal food. Yeah, it's basically optimized for the neshama, for the soul. So other food might have the physical part of it, but the spiritual part, is not it's it's missing the spiritual part of it so kosher food has both the physical part and the spiritual part it has the soul that we can that can help out our soul whereas other food doesn't have that spiritual energy to it as well it might make us physically you know energized but not the spiritual because it's like it's got to be special specially designed food for a specially designed soul think of it like um uh, you know, at least over here, when we, you know, you go to a gas station and you fill up your car, so they have different types of gasoline. You have like the whatever different numbers. Like if you have a, a really nice car, you need the, you know, a special car. You need you need a special type of gasoline. Kosher food is like a special type of gasoline. It's like a special type of fuel optimized not only for the body, but for the soul. The other stuff, yeah, it'll work for the body, but it's not going to be. That's what it says in Kabbalah. It says in Kabbalah that this that the spark in the kosher food is attuned to the soul. That's what it says. Okay, because it I, I, it was difficult to understand because I understand that everything has a soul. Right. right. Yeah. And but but probably it's, it's a different kind of soul. Yes. Everything. Right. Everything has a soul. The question is, does that soul feed? our soul or is it just you know it's it's just there so when the kosher food because it's it's attuned to our soul when we eat it it actually can help our soul as opposed to other things it has a soul all food everything has a soul divine energy but we don't access it we eat the food but the soul it doesn't doesn't benefit us because it's not it's not it's not the right it's like a key in the wrong lock it's not going to open it up it's not going to turn it so the kosher food is attuned to the soul to the neshama to, to help unlock it on some level. That's, that's the, that's the basic idea. Um, but there's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a very interesting topic. Um, okay. And mom, pleasure. And mom. Yeah. Uh, I will. I was going to ask you something else, but just to 
to continue on with, with, with what you were talking about just now, um, regular food, you mean like fruits and vegetables and things like that. That's not particularly kosher. No, fruits and vegetables are kosher. Okay, so what do you mean by not kosher fruit? Fruit that's not kosher. But you said it might feed some... Wait, I thought... Okay, I'm getting a little mixed up here. It's okay. Okay. I was saying the difference between kosher food and not kosher food. That kosher food is good for the body and good for the soul. Non-kosher food, a person could eat it and, and feel satisfied... But it's not the the but the soul the 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 spiritual energy for the for the neshama is not going to be there. That's, okay. that's it. Yeah. And then my other question is: so Tevya was wrong when he said, "If I were a rich man, I wouldn't have to work and I could sit in the in the and study all day." So that's not quite accurate. Right. Right. There's something about the spiritual element of work, even if we didn't need to work. Let's say all the bills were paid and everything right. was covered and we had the vacation. We had everything. We had everything we needed. We would still have an an in like an uh, an inherent a desire a drive to work. Something you know. The Rebbe spoke about this on the occasion of his seventieth birthday in nineteen seventy two. The Rebbe's birthday. The Rebbe spoke about this topic because the Rebbe said at that gathering. There's videos of it. It was a weekday gathering. So there was, you know, film and, and audio. So he said that there are people that are, that are, you know, calling on me to retire or to slow down. I'm 70s to slow down. The Rebbe says, not going to happen. Not only am I not sl- slowing down, I'm announcing tonight 70 new Chabad centers for the 70th year. He, he like went all out on that. Anyway, so... Um, uh, you should know this year, this uh, this April will be the Rebbe's 120th birthday, 120 years since the Rebbe's birth. And so there's a Chabad initiative to open up 120 new centers, 120 new new uh, um, areas of uh, of you know Chabad areas, and some are doing within within a state itself 120 new programs. Anyway, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff, but the Rebbe spoke about the idea of retirement and slowing down on the occasion of his 70th birthday and said, it's not within human nature really to slow down. I mean, we, we might think we want to slow down, but when we do slow down, it doesn't feel good, right? It feels like, oh, this is not real life. That's why even when people retire, they typically find other activities to keep them busy because you got to stay busy. You got to keep your mind active. You got to keep your, you got to stay engaged. You got to stay you know, you got to feel productive. It's it's a natural human desire to feel productive. So it doesn't have to be the same nine to five job. No one's saying it has to be the same thing, but there's something powerful in being productive. So, right, Tevi, if I was a rich man, I would, yeah, if you were a rich man, it would still need to work because it's uh, it's it's emulating the creator, emulating the divine. Um, okay, any other comments or questions looking around? Okay. Well, it is wonderful to see everybody. Thank you very much for joining. And I hope you appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed tonight's class. I hope you enjoyed the meditations. And I hope, here's the bottom line. What I really hope is that the next time you think about something mundane, eating, sleeping, working, or anything else that just seems very ordinary, remember, this too is divine. This too is spiritual. And I can find something amazing 
something incredible right here in this experience. All right, Lila Tov, have a good night. Looking forward to seeing you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Good night.